0: Podcast. Hey everyone, it's Malika. I'm handing the host mic this week to my colleague Natasha Del Toro. I'll be back next week. Enjoy. 77 years ago, Sadai Kasaoka was just a schoolgirl in Japan. She lived in a big house, and there was a big window where she would look out on the world. But what she saw on August 6, 1945 was like nothing she'd ever seen. I didn't know what it was flickering in front of my eyes. The most beautiful sunrise I'd ever seen. The beautiful orange light. But the moment I saw that, the glass window shattered. We were thrown back by the blast and knocked unconscious against the wall. Her city, Hiroshima, had just been hit by a U.S. atomic bomb.
1: At Hiroshima and then again at Nagasaki came the world-shaking explosions of the atomic bomb.
0: An act of war that changed the world forever.
1: Latest reports from the Japanese say that 126,000 died as the result of the damage done by the single bomb that blasted the city.
0: This weekend, her city is host to the G-7 summit, North American and Western European heads of state will meet with the leader of the host country, Japan, at a time when the world is closer to nuclear war than it's been in over half a century.
1: President Putin has ordered Russia's strategic nuclear forces to be placed on high alert. President Biden said that Putin is not joking when he talks about resorting to nuclear weapons.
0: The meetings will be centered on the war in Ukraine, and the tensions with Russia, plus China to the east. But with Hiroshima as a backdrop, will there be any time or money left to bring the world closer to peace? I'm Natasha Del Toro, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take.
1: My name is James Bayes. I am the diplomatic editor of Al Jazeera, a job I've done for 10 years. I've been a reporter for an awfully long time, nearly 40 years now.
0: James, why don't you tell us how many G7 summits you've covered now?
1: Every single year in this job, but I have to say I've covered G7s even before I did this job. And a sort of vague memory the first one I covered was in the early 1990s in the UK. And the one that I remember as the most eventful was in Italy in uh, 2001, actually just a few weeks before 9-11. Of course, we had no idea how the world was going to change. But at that time, the major story was anti-globalization protests. And there were huge demonstrations. And I remember myself and my cameraman, Nick Porter, this protester with an iron bar beating us both. And... We tried to get out of it, and there were more of these anti globalization people heading for us. And then suddenly, one of them pulls out a gun and starts firing. And we just ran as fast as we could. Only later did we discover that the protester who was firing actually was an undercover policeman who broke his cover to stop us being beaten to death. <laughs> anyway, there we go.
0: <laughs> oh, my goodness. So you've had some dramatic experiences at the G seven summit.
1: It's not normally like that,
0: I was going to say, i don't I don't typically think of it as some big dramatic event, but um in g seven, that literally means group of seven countries. R- remind us which countries they are,
1: yeah, Of course, you've got the u s, France, canada, u k, Germany, Italy. And the only Asian member of the G7, because all the others are Western countries, but uh, the only Eastern member uh, is Japan. Now, the other people that sit in on these summits are the European Union. They come to these meetings and are part of the top table. And the other thing you have at these summits, which is a more recent addition, is they have invited guests who join for part of the summit. So, for example, the Australian prime minister, the Brazilian president, the Indonesian president, the president of South Korea, they're among the guests this time around, as are some of the heads of global organizations.
0: So, US, Canada, the UK, France, Italy, Germany, Japan, the only Eastern nation, and then the European Union, plus some other guests.
1: Yes, there's there's some missing people there, aren't there? I mean, if you were looking at who's important players in the global economy, China does not have a seat at this table. It never has. Russia was given a seat and then kicked out.
0: Right. So those are the big elephants in the room. And we'll talk more about them a little further on. Um, But first, I want to know, I understand there have been 49 summits now, but this one seems like it could be a little more somber. The meetings are happening in Hiroshima, which as we all know, was the site of nuclear war. Um, This is where the atomic bomb was dropped in August of 1945. And James, you had a chance to get out and speak with some of the survivors. What did they say to you all these years later?
1: Well, I think first it's worth explaining that having this summit in Hiroshima is very much the initiative of Prime Minister Kishida of Japan. This is his hometown. Also worth saying that actually, although these are countries that share a lot, these are in some ways the global north. We've got none of the developing world here. These are the rich countries, the big Western countries and Japan, all sitting around the same table. But on this issue, the nuclear issue, they do have different views. Because, of course, three of these countries are nuclear powers. The US, of course, France and the UK. But there are other very powerful countries, Japan is one, Germany is another, where nuclear weapons are not at all popular. And certainly the Japanese prime minister is saying very much that he wants to bring these leaders here to see what nuclear weapons can do at a time of rising global tension, which gets us to the survivors that I've been speaking to. Hmm. And that's the message really that they want to share.
0: This is Sedai again, who we heard from earlier. I want everyone to know how tragic nuclear weapons are, and spread that message, and let more people know about it.
1: Remember that in the first few hours, we reckon nearly hundred thousand people were killed just instantly, and so many more died later from their injuries or also from radiation sickness. One lady who was a young girl when this happened, she was telling me it's so important to have these world leaders here. And she rather sternly said, I don't want them coming to Japan making military preparations, she was talking about the war in Ukraine. I want them to come here and see what could happen and talk instead about peace.
0: I imagine that it must be on the minds of the leaders who are gathering there as well. The G7 is mostly a Western group with a lot of interest in the war in Ukraine, as you just said. How does this particular backdrop, being in Hiroshima, then influence the talks about war?
1: Well, certainly some of those that are at the G7, and particularly the Japanese prime minister, do hope that it concentrates minds. There are lots of anti-nuclear campaigners, peace campaigners who are making their way here to try and see that these leaders get the right message from this. But I can tell you behind the scenes, and a lot of the work for these summits is done in advance. There's been quite a lot of back and forth about exactly what these leaders are going to do, who they're going to see, who they're going to speak to, because, as I mentioned, three of them are nuclear powers, and they don't want to be embarrassed by any difficult conversations.
0: What will they be discussing about Ukraine and the war there now?
1: Well, with regard to the nuclear threat, I think many experts would say that arguably we're... The closest with the tension that exists was some of the threats from the Russian side, failed threats, but they seem to be threats still.
0: President Putin accused the West of occupying Ukraine and engaging in nuclear blackmail. He again warned he'd use all means to protect Russia, including nuclear weapons. This is not a bluff. And those who are trying to blackmail Russia with nuclear weapons should know that the prevailing winds can also blow in their direction.
1: And the fighting that's taken place just around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, we are arguably the closest we've been to some sort of serious nuclear situation. I'm not gonna say nuclear war, but some sort of nuclear incident for very many years. Mm. I think it is an important moment for these leaders. In the end of these meetings, they always try and come up with some shared language and I'm sure there will be some language on the nuclear threat. And that, I think, will be a message that they'll want to be heard all around the world, in particular in Russia, but also in some of the other countries that are developing nuclear weapons.
0: Are there other solutions that are being proposed for the war?
1: I think certainly there'll be a great deal of discussion of what to do with regard uh, to Ukraine. We're 15 months into the war. We had a situation where Ukraine made some progress at the end of last year. There's been stalemate around Bakhmut nearly all of this year. And many are wondering what happens next, what happens with regard to the new defence capability that Ukraine has, the new offensive capability that it's supposed to have coming from these Western nations. So I think there will be talk about that. We expect President Zelensky to participate in some way or other in this meeting.
0: Will Zelensky be going to the G7 in Japan?
1: We are told he is not going to be attending. So I am assuming he's not going to be attending. (laughs) I will add this, though, as a caveat. If President Zelensky was going to be attending, would they tell us he was going to be attending? His travel is kept completely secret all the time. (laughs) Right. So there could just be a Zelensky surprise. (laughs) And I have to say... That would be a pretty symbolic thing to see the G7, those leaders, standing there with President Zelensky at their side. Because remember, when Russia invaded Crimea in 2014, it was in the G8 and President Putin got kicked out. Mm. So if President Zelensky was to be here, imagine the symbolism of him taking that eighth slot, the slot that used to be Putin's.
0: Well, we'll have to see if Zelensky, if he shows up.
1: I think it's unlikely, but it's not just going to be at the military side. The G7 is about politics. It's about military threats around the world. They discuss all of those things, but it's also, and in many ways, this is its primary role. It's an economic meeting, Hmm. and they'll be looking at how to support Ukraine financially, but also to looking at those sanctions that they've placed. And where the loopholes are, where the back doors are, where Russia is managing to import things using third parties. And that, I'm told, is one of the areas that they really want to focus on at this meeting.
0: But just how much money is going to Ukraine? And will there be more to the G7 meeting than the war effort? We'll find out after the break. On the Inside Story podcast this week, Russia steps up missile attacks on Kyiv, and Vladimir Zelensky secures more weapons from Ukraine's Western allies. But will it make a difference on the battlefield? Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So, James, we know there's a lot of money going to Ukraine right now, nearly $450 billion from around the world to arms and aid. But as you've said, there are a lot of other issues going on. There was just a massive cyclone that hit Myanmar. More than 400 people are now dead in Myanmar in the wake of Cyclone Mocha. There's fighting and displacement that Al Jazeera has been covering in Sudan. Fighting between Sudan's rapid support forces and local armed groups is escalating in West Darfur. There's the conflict in Yemen. Is there time and money to talk about those places and those issues as well at this year's G7 summit?
1: Well... It sucks the oxygen out of everything Ukraine, I mean it's, we're Al Jazeera and we try, as you know, to cover forgotten stories. You know, I was in Afghanistan 10 days ago, um, and Ukraine still is the big story because of the superpower element, because it involves Russia and because the backers of Ukraine are NATO and the US. It is such a powerful story, but It's frustrating sometimes that, you know, there are stories going on in Afghanistan, in Myanmar, Yemen, Syria. They haven't stopped. They're as bad as ever. They do have a formal agenda, but if someone wants to raise something else, if someone wants to talk in the margins about something else, in many ways, that's where important things get done. You won't see it come to fruition at a meeting like this, but it might be the germ of an idea that will change the direction of these leaders, and these are the leaders of the West. And there aren't many other people at the dinners. There are things that will be raised that we'll never find out about, but it's certainly a fascinating format. Of course, in terms of the financial issues, it is expanded, as I said earlier, with, for some of the sessions with other invitees, the Prime Minister of India, the President of Indonesia, the President of Brazil, the leader of Vietnam, you're going to be seeing some pushing a bit on global finance. And very publicly raising it is the UN Secretary General saying the global financial system just does not work. Developing countries have such great debt, and the whole system needs to change.
0: Hmm. As you mentioned, the big elephants in the room are China and Russia, who are not at the G7. You know, there's this geopolitical narrative that's about taking on strong leaders like Vladimir Putin in Russia and Xi Jinping in China, are new ideas being proposed for for that?
1: Well, China is, with regard to Ukraine, someone they're thinking very carefully about, because China is making a bid to be a player here in a peace. The Chinese government released a 12-point plan, which it's calling, quote, China's position on the political settlement of the Ukraine crisis. Beijing is calling for an end to Western sanctions on Russia and urging Moscow and Kyiv to hold peace talks. Now, most diplomats that I've spoken to from Western countries, particularly in New York on the UN Security Council, pretty sceptical of the so-called Chinese peace plan, even though there's a Chinese peace envoy going around the region for discussions, because they say it's somewhat contradictory. The Chinese peace plan says at the beginning of it, that it respects the sovereignty and territorial integrity of all countries. But then the same Chinese police pan at no point says that President Putin needs to pull out his troops. Mm. But I think they want to still engage with China on Ukraine. And it's very interesting that President Zelensky, when he had that phone call with President Xi, he was very, very polite about the Chinese. I think they see that China is one of the few countries that could play a role in bringing this war to an end, or at least having some leverage over the situation.
0: I know obviously all of these countries rely on China as a trading partner. So Japan and US, they are hoping that the G7 will be united on China. Is that right? I mean, I imagine there's a lot of interests that are at stake here.
1: Yeah, I mean, China is a very different thing from Russia. China is clearly a worry to these countries, and certainly that's the case they make, with regard to security. And particularly they're concerned about the situation in Taiwan. But at the same time, China is part of the global economy. The global economy could not exist without China. If you were to have some sort of confrontation, some sort of conflict with China, the whole global system is going to break down. It's going to be so, so different from Russia.
0: And China, from my understanding, has been pushing back. Has that changed the tenor at all of the summit?
1: Certainly, China is more assertive now than at any time that I remember China and its role on the diplomatic stage, certainly even at the beginning of President Xi's time. You just, you had to sort of listen very, very carefully and listen to these statements and go, hmm, I wonder what China really means by that, and try and decipher the words. It's not like that now. Now we have a much more assertive, bolder China.
0: One of the places where that assertiveness comes out is when it comes to sanctions.
1: Certainly the whole issue of sanctions, which... The Western countries think is a useful tool, um, one of the things that they can uh, use as leverage that is short of any military action, um, is a really, really dirty word for both China and Russia.
0: The European Union is working on what would be its 11th round of sanctions since Russia invaded Ukraine last year. Beijing in recent years has emerged as a global power, and sanctioning it would have huge economic ramifications.
1: They do not like sanctions. They do not like talk of sanctions. Russia and China, which both have vetoes on the Security Council, are opposing sanctions in nearly every case. When you look at Afghanistan, when you look at the two generals in Sudan, there is, it seems, no appetite for sanctions anymore. I think the whole appetite for sanctions from China and Russia uh, is is not there anymore. And I think that's shared as well by uh, plenty of others in the Global South.
0: And I get, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but considering where you are, again, going back to Hiroshima, do you think that sanctions could be seen as better than than war?
1: I mean, certainly those that I've spoken to here are saying what you need to be doing is talking about peace. Um, but uh, of course, it's very difficult to see the contours of any peace deal. You know, the Ukrainians are Waiting for their new weapons. They're demanding new weapons. They'd they'd love to have F-16s They'd love to have air power. The Russians are in a situation where if they were to Give up now. It would look like they'd lost the war So they're in it to win it even if they're not winning it right now. I Don't think there's really any any appetite for peace from either side But the people you speak to here. Yes, they say give peace a chance I mean, the lessons of what happened here when bomb was dropped from a U.S. aircraft, one of the worst things to have ever happened to mankind, and it was done by mankind.
0: And that's The Take. We'll be back on Monday. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Chloe K. Lee and Nagin Oliay, Miranda Lynn, Sonia Bagat, Ashish Malhotra, Khaled Sultan, and me, Natasha del Toro, in for Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Our engagement producers are Adam Abugad and Munera Aldousari. Alexander Locke is The Take's executive producer. And Nate Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio.